Well, thank you. No pressure there then. <laughs> Hope I don't really ruin it for you, Rich. Um, it is a great story, this. We've, we've, we've been kind of um, salivating a little bit because we've lingered a in the little passage before and been looking forward to this story. And I've delayed it twice by being preoccupied with other things. But we're now into the narrative uh, that, that uh, Sam read to us. Where's Sam? Somewhere. Oh no, oh, has he gone in there? Okay. Um, let, let me begin with an illustration. I've always been fascinated by adverts. I, I, if I could sort of do my career again, I think I would love to go into advertising. Ad, adverts fascinate me. I especially love the creativity that goes into advertising jingles that seem to lodge themselves in our brains for years and years and years, way after the product that they were advertising is forgotten. And uh, my kids will tell you that sometimes uh, there are adverts I remember from being a kid and I'll, I'll suddenly be, something will trigger a memory and I'll randomly start singing. If you like a lot of chocolate on your biscuit, don't buy ginger nuts. I mean, where does that come from? <laughs> or it, it'll be some toy or car or... You, so they're all there, aren't they? Lodged in the back of the mind somewhere. Advertisements. I'm sorry to sing, that was awful, wasn't it? I, I grew up in the 1970s, believe it or not, I know I don't look old enough, but um, contrary to what Richard thinks and says, but one of the most popular toys in the 1970s was the Weeble. Anyone remember the Weeble? The Weeble! They, they were actually relaunched not that long ago, a couple of years ago. Um, I couldn't find the UK ad but I've got the American version that has the jingle, and some of you who are old enough will know already what the jingle is. So I'm going to turn the lights off, and we're going to watch the Weeble ad. Okay? Hopefully this works. There's a wonderful world of wobbly weeble Daddy and mommy, sis and brother too Helping your kids learn about the world we live in Doing the things families do Lovable weebles are wobbling round Weebles wobble but they don't fall down There's just nothing like them anywhere around Weebles wobble but they don't fall down Romper Room makes weeble toys Again. What's the strap line? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Who remembers that? You all remember that. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Um, it is, it's only a kid's toy, but I have to say, there is a wealth of spiritual insight in that strap line. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. As we come to this chapter, the disciples of Jesus are the original weebles. They are. They wobble. They're attacked from every conceivable angle. They wobble, but they don't fall down. They're under pressure from every side, and yet somehow God helps them to stay standing. 
It's a very simple illustration, but what a wealth of spiritual insight. There's that. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Attacked, pushed, threatened, but by God's grace, not destroyed. I, I, I think that that underlying theme for this chapter is very, very reassuring, isn't it? And in fact, I think, I think there's a strong theme in the book of Acts of reassurance. Um, let, let me just remind you um, what we know about Acts, just, just briefly. We're not going to linger with this, but the, 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 the reason that Luke writes this book that we've been studying is to reassure his friend. That, that's the whole purpose of his writing. Um, you, you'll know that we, we've already learned, haven't we, that Luke writes two books that are in the New Testament. One of them is very helpfully called Luke, just to give a clue. Here we go. Um, and that's the Gospel of Luke. It's all about Jesus. And, the, and then Acts is all about what happened after Jesus went back to heaven. So it's like one book in two parts, like a two-volume book. So what Luke says at the start of his gospel actually applies to the book of Acts as well. So just, if, you don't have to turn to, it if you, turn to it if you can. Luke chapter 1, this is what Luke says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. His friend was called Theophilus. Um, the reason Luke writes very careful investigation he, he wants to put everything down in order why? so that his friend will be reassured I, I, we don't really know a lot about Theophilus I think Theophilus is a believer but he's worried that he's believed the wrong thing he's got doubts he's concerned about whether he's kind of missed a point are these this Christian message that I've believed in, is it really true? Isn't it encouraging that there's a book in the Bible with the sole purpose of being written for someone who thinks they've got the wrong end of the stick? I don't think a lot of people know that a book like that's in the Bible. So it's written to reassure his friend. I, one of the reasons I think Theophilus is worried just to go back to our illustration, is he thinks that the weebles have fallen over. That's the whole point. He thinks that the disciples, the Christian believers, they've, they've, he's confused. So here's a guy who, who feels like he's being swept along on the, on the sort of tide of history, but he's not sure if anyone or anything is really in control. And he looks out across a complicated world and there are things that he can't understand. If Jesus, for example, if Jesus is really the Messiah, how come all the Jews don't believe in him? That's a hard question. Worse still, why have so many of Jesus' first disciples been killed, martyred, persecuted, 
thrown into prison, heads chopped off. Almost all of Jesus' first disciples, as far as we know, were martyred for their faith. Why is it, if Jesus is the Christ, that being a Christian is so hard? Why is there always conflict between Jewish leaders and Christians, Roman officials and Christians? Why is it so hard? If, if this is God's new thing, surely it should be easier than this. It seems small and weak and there's arguments and controversies and I'm wondering now whether I've got the wrong end of state. I'm, I'm tempted to jack it all in. I don't know what I'm going to replace it with but I'm not sure that what I've believed is right. Luke's writing to reassure his friend who's beginning to doubt because things seem too hard, too complicated. One writer says about this section that Sam read, the, the total effect on the hearer of this section is that the new currents are, over, are overwhelming the established order in the unfolding plan of God. Does that make sense? The new currents are overwhelming the established order. I've got a little picture here because I like to think in pictures so it helps me. I hope it helps you. Here's a little picture. Of, of This is my view of like Christian biblical history. It's very simple. It's not complicated. On the left, we've got 2,000 plus years of Old Testament history. You know the Bible's got two parts. The Old Testament, all about the Jews, Moses and Abraham and King David and all those guys. That Old Testament covers 2,000 odd years of history. All of it points to Jesus coming. All of that history, every prophet, every priest, every king, every psalm, every book in the Old Testament, it all points forward to the day when Jesus would come. But when Jesus came... A lot of people thought, he can't be the Messiah, can he? I thought he was going to come riding over the hill on a big white horse and kick the Romans' heads in. And he died on a cross, in shame, outside the city wall. If he was the Messiah, that would have never happened to him, surely. So even as Jesus comes into the world to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament, some people believed in him, and some people said, no, I'm not having that. And immediately there's conflict. The first century was simmering with this sort of conflict. And it all comes down to, as it still really comes down now, to who is Jesus really? It's the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Is he the promised Messiah, God's chosen king? Or is he just some charismatic Galilean peasant teacher who got lucky? And people made stuff up about him. That, the, the question now, as it was then, is who is Jesus? And I, I could ask you that question this afternoon. Who, whatever you think about all other complicated subjects, the most important question you can ask is, who do you think Jesus is? Well, that was the debate. And one of the, one of the problems is that the establishment, as I've shown the drawing there, after Jesus came... 
it's almost like Luke is trying to show to Theophilus the establishment has been in decline. Not because the Old Testament was wrong, but because when Jesus came, they refused to embrace him and accept him. So the establishment is kind of in decline. The, ch- the true Christian believers who are joined to Jesus are on the up. And I think the story of Acts, and this is one of the reasons why it was so hard for men like Theophilus, is that the establishment are constantly attacking and persecuting the true followers of Jesus. So it isn't easy, but the fact that it isn't easy doesn't mean that it isn't true. It's, it's one of the evidences that it's true. Great conflict, this kind of, the establishment is fading, the church is exploding into life. The old structures do carry on, but they really become an empty shadow of what they were meant to be, while the the church explodes into life. We might say the establishment is resisting God, while these apostles and these fierce Christians are the ones obeying God. And there's a conflict there from the very beginning. The whole book of Acts is simmering with this conflict. And, um, and, I, and all of this, Luke is writing to help Theophilus, his friend, get a perspective on messy, real history. And the, and the aim is to encourage him to stand firm in his faith, even when he's confused about what's going on in the world around him. These early chapters in Acts have a kind of trajectory. As the church grows... So does the opposition. Um, one, one writer says that, that this is a crisis of authority and allegiance at the heart of the community in Jerusalem. It started in chapter 3 with a ticking off for just Peter and John. Peter and John get called in, they get a little slap on the wrist. Here in this chapter, it's not Peter and John, it's all the apostles. And they don't just get a ticking off, but they get thrown in jail and then miraculously released. And then they all get flogged with the, what is it, 40 lashes minus one. This is with the whips with little bits of stone in them. All their backs torn to a pulp. All the apostles flogged until they bled. And it escalates even further to a climax in chapter 8 as Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is stoned to death in Jerusalem. What Luke is trying to show to his friend is that the Christian church is growing, it's exploding into life in a very hostile environment. Does that make sense? And in fact, throughout the book of Acts and throughout history, this is an interesting one for us now today, we're Whatever culture the gospel comes to and tries to, um, we, we might use the word invade, whenever the gospel comes to a new group of people, what tends to happen is as the gospel takes root, there'll be some people in that culture that will embrace Jesus and the gospel and there'll be others in that culture that will say, no, I'm not having that. And the first persecution will always arise from the culture in which the gospel takes root. So the gospel begins in Jerusalem. Some people believe the persecution arises from the Jewish authorities. As the gospel goes out to Gentiles, the gospel begins to pack the Roman Empire 
And where does the persecution come from then? Not the Roman, or not the Jewish authorities, but the Roman authorities. If the gospel came to your street, no doubt some people would embrace Jesus and embrace the gospel. And some people would think, who do they think they are? Think they're better than us? <laughs> and that persecution always arises from within the culture that the gospel takes root in. And that's exactly what's happening here. There's a conflict as the gospel begins to grow and spread. So, that, that, that's kind of the, the backdrop to this chapter that we're going to look at. So now we've got that, we can look at the Weeble content of chapter 5. What, what's going on here in this chapter? If this was a play, I suggest that there's three scenes. I was going to say three acts. See what I did there? But we won't say three acts because that will confuse us. Three scenes, okay? The first scene is the initial confrontation. We'll deal with that. And I'm going to suggest to you that the way we can look at this chapter is the authorities are trying to knock the weebles down. We're going to knock them over. And they try, but the weebles, they wobble, but they don't fall down. Then there's a second scene where there's a trial and they try some other tactics to knock the weevils down. They wobble, but they don't fall down. And then there's the aftermath. So three scenes, three attempts to knock down the weevils. They wobble, but they don't fall down. And I think that's very reassuring. And hopefully as we walk through the narrative, we'll get a sense of the conflict that's going on. Okay. So here, here's my first, and that, this is a series of contrasts here. here here's my first, um, remember that. I've picked a bad colour there, haven't I? That, that's not a good contrast. So my first uh, scene involves jealousy and control versus life and liberty. So that, that's the first scene. So if you've got a Bible, let's get into it. It's on page 1097, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. You'll remember that these apostles have been preaching in the temple courts. People have come to faith in Jesus. The church is growing. There's quite a few thousand people now who are part of this fledged... They don't even call themselves a church yet. They're just known as followers of the way. This is almost like a little subculture within Judaism at this point. They've done great miracles. People have been healed of all kinds of diseases. And the high priest and his associates, members of the part of the Sadducees, have quite literally had enough. This has got to stop. This is, this is not just a small thing anymore. This is really starting to have impact. We have got to smash this new movement and squash it. What does it say in verse 17 their motive was? In chapter 3, I think their motive was more fear. Here, Luke says, they were filled with jealousy so these are the guys who are like the ruling elite these are the guys who have power to run things this is like the national government if you like of the Jewish nation and these men feel that these Apostles and the growing church in Jerusalem is a threat to their authority. 
One writer says, the apostles and their message represent a major irritant and a perceived assault on Sadducean authority. They sense a loss of power, which they will seek to reassert. So their reaction here is about theology and power politics. The establishment is worried, jealous. Just as an aside here, I I don't want to dwell on this, but when when I was reflecting on on that previous... um, When I was reflecting on that shape, I I don't know if this is just the way my mind works, but it reminded me of, in the Old Testament, it reminded me of King Saul and King David. King Saul was the first king of Israel. He was a good man to start with. And he just kind of completely went off the rails. And the second king, King David, was a, was, was a good man. He, he, he made mistakes, but he had a heart that loved God and wanted to follow God. And as Saul declined and descended into paranoia and all kinds of weird stuff, David, in fact, the people used to sing, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands, and Saul would be sat in his palace going, I hate him, I hate him. Everybody loves him, but I hate him. And as he's going down, David's popularity is increasing, and he tries several times to kill David. Saul wanted control, and he became selfish, and he ended up falling apart. He disintegrated into jealousy, anger, superstition. Eventually, he just implodes completely. And David, by contrast, is the one who kind of explodes into life. His life had an upward trajectory while Saul descends into chaos. It's very interesting that it's Saul's guilt and fear that lead him to just hate David. He becomes obsessed. with, with, He even takes the army to kill one man. And uh, all the while, he's becoming increasingly hollow himself in his heart. Anyway, that, it just remind, that drawing just reminded me of that. So, I just uh, an aside. It, it, this kind of it made me think of Saul and David for this as well, though. The fact that Saul was so jealous—that—that's what's the problem with the establishment is. The, these upstart people who are following Jesus. The people all seem to love them. We're going to lose our authority. We've got to do something about this. They'd had enough. So what does Luke say? The high priest, they'd had enough. They were filled with jealousy. So they send some staff to arrest all the apostles and put them in the public jail. The big story there is their desire to retain control. We've got to reassert our authority on this situation. This is our patch and they're not going to defeat us on our own patch. So they have them thrown into jail. But they're not really just fighting the apostles here, are they? They're really fighting the God of the apostles. And the next part... I don't know why this is why Rich thinks it's his favourite story, but the next part's comedy gold, isn't it? <coughs> we'll, we'll come back to the, uh, the angel in a minute. The, in, the, in the middle of the night, an angel comes and opens the doors of the jail and brings them out. 
And imagine being commissioned by an angel to preach. I, I love preaching. But imagine if an angel came to you and said, Hey, I want you to go. Stand in the temple. And just tell anyone who will listen all about this new life that you found in Jesus. I mean, you'd be there, wouldn't you? An angel commissions them. Go, go. Well, it's the middle of the night, so they probably go home and get an hour's kip. And then at daybreak, they go, in obedience to the angel, to the temple courts to preach. In the meantime, the high priest hasn't got the foggiest idea what's happened. He gets up in the morning, has a shave, puts his best robes on. He calls the full Sanhedrin, over 70 men, apparently with three rows of trainees behind them, taking notes and watching. They're all there in the best robes, their shoes are polished. Okay, bring them in, we're ready. And someone goes to prison, the guards are there, they unlock the door, they go in, there's no apostles there. They come back, and it's like, what? Go check and get, what? There's, there's no one there, the guards are there, the door was locked. And then as they're kind of thinking about this, some bright spot runs in breathless and says, they're in the temple, preaching their hearts out. What an embarrassment to the authorities. This time, in verse 24, they don't just send an underling. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts preaching. At that, the captain went with his officers. I'm not sending an underling this time. No mistakes this time. And they go to bring the apostles back. What Luke has conveyed here is that weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. The disciples are under attack. You can throw what you like at God, but you can't win. On one side we have control and jealousy and on the other we have life and liberty. Look at the words of the angel. Go, stand in the temple and tell the people the full message of this new life. The picture I have in my mind, again thinking in pictures, is one of those old-fashioned town criers. Can you picture those guys? They sort of dress like Father Christmas. Massive bell. And they stand in the centre of the town. Oh, yay! Oh, yay! And they ring the bell. It's like in olden times. The town crier. This is important. I have something to say. They didn't pick town criers. They were like timid, did they? You've got to sound like Brian Blessed, you know, a big, deep, resonant voice. Oh, yay! You ring the bell and proclaim something. The angel says, go and be town criers. But the message they have isn't political. The message they have isn't manipulative. The message they have is not a game. Go stand in a temple court and tell the people the full message of this new life.
uh, some of you know, I've been on a bit of a fitness regime these last few months. And um, lots of people have given me lots of different advice about, you know, what to eat. And I've eaten a few Big Macs in my life and quarter pound of your cheese, actually, that's my thing. I do love McDonald's fries. They're so lovely and salty. And but I'm not sure now, in hindsight, now I know a little bit more about what's in them, I'm not sure it's really nutritious and nourishing. Um, I still like them every now and again. And then, and then Rachel, Bev's daughter, she came around to our house and she said, you've got to get into this herbal life stuff. And th this is like, you know, this is good stuff. You know, people can be nourished by this good, nutritious uh, stuff. In, in the Bible, uh, the gospel, the Christian message, we, we call it the gospel. Christians talk a lot about the gospel. It really means good news. The gospel is referred to in the Bible as sound. And I, I, you, you might hear Christians talk about, you know, the, the gospel being sound. It's a word that's been hijacked by modern culture. You hear, hear youngsters, don't you, say, oh, that's sound, that, sound. But it, they, they weren't talking like that in Bible times. The gospel is sound. It, it is sound, but it, it's kind of sound. The word sound really means it's, it's wholesome. It's not like an apple that looks nice on the outside, you bite into it, and it's rotten on the inside. It's sound. It's it's full of goodness. It's like herbal life. <laughs> I'm so sorry Rachel's not here. She would have loved that little sales pitch. The gospel is good news that will help you to live your life on solid foundations. It is nourishing and nutritious. The gospel will lead you, metaphorically, into clean air, nutritious food spacious light filled the gospel is not there to do you harm it is there to help you to be the person that God created you to be the Christian gospel that's what the angel said this is a word from heaven an angel from heaven who sees all this misery says to the apostles go and tell them all about this life the whole aim of God is not to shackle people and slave people, but to liberate people to be the people that he's made them to be. The authorities try to knock them down by throwing them in jail to silence them. And God brings them right back out and sends them to do what? To proclaim God's good news of life. So that's scene one. Jealousy and control versus liberty and life. This is a big, if this was a boxing match, it'd be epic. We'll try and knock them down. You just can't. Put them in prison. God brings them out. Try and silence them. They, they preach it again. What's well, seen to them is the trial. So we've seen the captain goes. Very interestingly, actually, um, the end of verse 26, uh, they came to the apostles who were in full flow preaching this sound gospel. And, and you can imagine the captain and his uh, assistants, it says there they didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So they, they go to where the apostles are preaching 
in full flow, the temple courts, they say, can we just have a quiet look? Possibly. Would you, would you mind coming with us? And it's only the fact that the apostles are willing to come. They're, they're, they're so embarrassed. This is a conflict between the establishment and these new Christian believers. One's in decline and one is on the up. The charges are very revealing. So they bring them in before the Sanhedrin, big semicircle, and um, all the officials there in their robes. Imagine facing a court of like probably the best part of a hundred people. And all the apostles are there in the middle. And they make uh, the, the, to be questioned by the high priest. So what are the charges? Verse 28. I don't know if it's the high priest who said this. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. They can't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. No, no word of the escape from prison, by the way. How do you explain that? We gave you strict orders. That was in chapter 3. We told you, what you were doing in chapter 3 wasn't illegal because we, we didn't know you were going to preach about Jesus, so we hadn't made a law to make it illegal. But after what happened in chapter 3, we have now made it illegal. We told you then not to do this, and you've done it. So you've disobeyed our direct order. We don't like that. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching. But it's very interesting, the next charge. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. That's really the underlying issue, isn't it? You're basically saying that we got it wrong and that when Jesus was crucified you, you're ba- when you preach in Jerusalem and you're telling all the people basically that we have effectively murdered Jesus we don't like that you're accusing us of murder so what is provoking these men is a combination of a loss a threat to their authority and a sense of nagging guilt, I want to suggest. I I think these men are actually frightened. These leaders, even with their posh robes on, are effectively guilt-ridden. It's a strange thing to observe, isn't it, that the biggest bullies are often the most disturbed. that true? Sometimes the biggest bullies who want to frighten other people are actually inside the most frightened people themselves. They feel fear and so they try to rule by fear. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe it works the other way around. Maybe they rule by fear and their reward is never then to be quite comfortable themselves. I'm not sure if it really matters which way around it comes. But a nagging guilt eats away at their insides and creates this vicious circle of controlling behaviour. They're putting the apostles on trial, but in their hearts they feel like they're on trial. Their consciences are pricked and they feel like they're losing everything. Our world is falling apart. I wish these pesky apostles would just clear off and go somewhere else. Do you know what's interesting about their plea? 
of innocence. You're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. What's really interesting, if you go back to Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 27, can you, wait, do you remember when Jesus was crucified, Pilate came out, and it was a custom to release a prisoner. So he deliberately chose the worst criminal he could find, Barabbas, because he knew Jesus was innocent. And he brings them both out and says, who do you want me to release? It's a custom for me to release a prisoner. Barabbas or Jesus? The chief priests rallied the crowd and they, sh- and they said, give us Barabbas. Verse 20 of Matthew 27. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor, Pilate. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. It's an awful scene. Pilate saw, verse 24, that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them and had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The people actually said, put his blood to our account. They were, they, that, that's what they said. This is only probably a few months before. And now the disciples are preaching Jerusalem and these men are nagged by guilt. Their conscience eats away. You're trying to make out that we murdered Jesus. Actually, this is what they'd asked for and now they're haunted by it. So here's the second attempted knockdown. Motivated by guilt, they try to frighten the disciples into silence. Their reply is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Time's really gone, hasn't it? I'm I'm only halfway through it. It's terrible. Um, The reply is fascinating. Um, Where are we? Let me find the verse. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his, to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witness of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. A little dig at the end there. The establishment versus the apostles. Who's going to win? <laughs> First of all, the apostles situate themselves in the flow of history. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. God, the God you claim to worship, raised Jesus from the dead. 
God raised him after you killed him. In other words, guys, there's a, this is a scary court for us to appear in, but there's a higher court than this one. Your verdict was crucify him. God's verdict was, he's my son who I love. God exalts him to the highest place. You tried to shame him by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him. You wanted to make the death of Christ a matter of honour. You thought because you crucified him that you'd won. But God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place to be the saviour. Do you know what is amazing about this little speech Peter gives? Is that he's given the Sanhedrin here opportunity to repent and be forgiven. He isn't wanting to slam them. In other words, rather than this message being a threat to your authority and a threat to the nation of Israel, what Jesus has done in dying as the Saviour is the very source of your life hope. God has turned your evil act into something that can bring about your salvation. And that guilt that you asked to be on your own head has fallen on him. And you don't need to bear the guilt for what you've done because Jesus died for your sins. This is one of the reasons why this is not a morality tale. One of the things I want you to hear loud and clear today is, one thing I'm not saying today is, don't be like the Sanhedrin, be like the disciples. I, well, I kind of am saying that, but I'm, I'm not saying that. This is not a morality tale. The very centre of this whole story is the fact that we need a saviour. And these apostles knew that they had a saviour. They didn't think they were better than the Sanhedrin. They needed forgiveness and grace from God. What they knew was that they'd found it in Jesus. That's what they proclaim. It's not, this, this message isn't try hard not to fall down, but trust Jesus to forgive you and enable you. Well, what a contrast there is in this second scene. Oh, I didn't give you the second one, did I? The second one. The Sanhedrin motivated by guilt and fear versus the courage and clarity of these apostles. They try to knock them down. They wobble, but they don't fall down. God gives them boldness, simplicity, clarity, and enables them to speak for Jesus even when it's hard. Isn't that amazing? Well, the, the, these, are, these um, Sanhedrin are furious, and uh, they're even more furious, literally sown in two with rage. And the aftermath, very quickly then, we'll have to uh, rattle through this. Well, we haven't got time really. Gamaliel says, he stands up, Gamaliel, and he pleads with them to be careful. I'm not sure about whether what Gamaliel says is good or bad. I don't know. He seems to calm them down anyway, so that's a good thing. Be patient. See how things go. Don't fight God. And so they go, okay, let's flog them. Let's flog them. I mean, that, you know, we're in danger of fighting God. Let's flog them. So they, 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 all the apostles are flogged. 
And that, that's not a slap across the wrist. That is a serious back bleeding, flogging. It's like a petulant lashing out because they can. What, what they're trying to do here is to shame these apostles, to punish them, humiliate them, and shame them, to oppress them. This will teach them a lesson. This will be a deterrent. This will stop them standing up in that temple court, blowing their trumpets and ringing their bells and talking about Jesus. Let's just shame them. What is amazing is that rather than shaming them, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And more than that, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus in the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Oppressed and shamed, and yet their reaction is joy and energy. The greater the threat, the more courage they seem to have. It's almost like the, the, the whipping that they got was like a badge of honour. They never complain about the injustice. They don't boast of their own ability. They're only interested in bringing honour to the name of Jesus. Only God can do that. Well, we're, we're pretty much done. I want to let me give you a couple of things to take away. What, what, what's the point of this story? Well, first of all, I want to say that there's an encouragement here that God is in control. The whole point of Luke writing this is to reassure his friend who's not sure. The whole point of this story that Luke records is to show Theophilus that God is in control. The Christian believers, God is with them. The establishment is descending into hollow, an, a hollow, empty shadow of what it should have been. He's saying to Theophilus, you can be sure of what you've been taught. The gospel is good. Christ is real. It is a good thing to follow Jesus, even when it hurts. It doesn't mean that things will be easy. There are many Christians all around our world who have lives that are very, very far from being easy. Let let us never preach a gospel that says, come to Jesus and your life will be a bed of roses. Actually, come for these guys and for many Christians around the world, come to Jesus and your life will be pretty much over. But it's worth it because of who he is. This world rejected Jesus and crucified him. And there's an encouragement here for for Theophilus that God is ultimately in control. Secondly, there is surely a great futility in fighting against God. It seems to me that the more evil throws at God, the more he catches it, spins it around and throws it back as good. I once read a story of a man in New Zealand and he was a missionary preaching the gospel. Somebody threw a potato through his window to smash his window. He picked the potato up off the floor and planted it in his garden, grew more potatoes and then took a sack of potatoes to the guy who threw the potato through his window in the first place. How good is that? The futility of fighting God. 
these men wanted to crucify Jesus and do away with him. And God kind of catches that, turns it around, and makes it the means of them being forgiven. God is amazing. You can't fight God and win. He even uses his enemies to further his purposes without them even realising it. The undercurrent to this passage is that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel message. Divine leading and protection are on the apostles' side. Their opponents may persecute them, but they'll never be able to crush them. And lastly, here's a challenge for all of us, Christian or otherwise. I want to just close with this. The, 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 I want to say the dehumanizing effects of disobedience. I want you to notice the pattern here. The authorities here are resisting God, fighting God, hating Christ, wanting control and power and position, and they're just unable or unwilling or both to submit to Jesus. And what happens to them? The further they move away from God, the more they seem to shrink in on themselves. Their disobedience seems almost to make them less human. They descend, like King Saul in the Old Testament, into selfishness, pettiness, jealousy, anger, even paranoia. On the other hand, these apostles, despite their physical ordeals, just seem to grow and blossom and flourish. Their hearts are enlarged. Their vision grows, their faith grows, their joy is more real, their courage is more firm, their obedience is more immediate. Even though they suffer, they seem to be becoming more human. There's something about disobedience. You know, the, the great lie that the devil gave in the Garden of Eden was, you can't trust God. You're better off on your own. It's a lie. Disobedience always dehumanizes us. When we move away from God, we become less than what we were made to be. And I think the challenge of this passage from these conflicts is don't, whatever you do, fight against God. Come and embrace Jesus. Learn to trust him. He means you no harm. And obedience is the path of growth, enlargement, inspiration the path of obedience is the path of life disobedience is a path of misery so may, may we learn to embrace and trust in Jesus and may we like Theophilus be reassured that the gospel is good Christ is real and learn to follow and trust him even in a perplexing, difficult, complex world Gave you all three, didn't I? Oh man. <laughs>